For me, fashion is a verb. So it's too fashion. You're listening to Wardrobe Crisis with Claire Press. Join me every week as we look at sustainability, ethics, and the business and madness of fashion. How are you all doing? Do you enjoy Earth Day last week? It made me think, I just keep thinking it, we've got to have Earth Day every day. I mean, of course, it's great to centre it on April the 22nd, but pretty much all our modern systems put adverse pressure on the environment. Now, farming is no exception, and that's this week's theme. You probably already know that industrialised farming is a big greenhouse gas polluter and that it's chemically intensive. But how much do you really know about animal agriculture? about its scale and waste and the way that we treat the animals that feed us and provide leather for the fashion industry. Today's guest is Philip Limbury, who is the CEO of something called Compassion in World Farming. He's also the author of a book called Farmageddon. Brilliant, actually. Very confronting. Be warned, there's some confronting bits in this interview too, because the story of factory farming is not pretty. That said, I think you'll find this a lovely, engaging interview, and I would love to hear what you think, not least about the question as to whether we should all turn vegan. You can find me on Instagram and Twitter. I'm at Mrs. Press. And please do rate and review the show wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. Where are we? Because to me, it feels a long way from the city, and yet it's only 40 minutes. We're in Godalming in Surrey. We're right by the railway station here, so our office is perfectly placed for being somewhere that feels like the countryside, but also is just 45 minutes into central London. But it feels green, serene. I saw a robin singing in a tree. It feels like rural land. Yeah, it's um, a human-scale community here. And a perfect place, really, for an organisation that is all about compassion. Compassion to animals, compassion to the countryside, compassion to ourselves. Well, I asked you that for a reason, because are we surrounded by farmland? I can't see because I'm just off the train. But if I were to go out a little bit, would I find our kind of green and pleasant land of imagination? You would find uh, green fields. You would find farmland around here. You are getting the further south you get, uh, the more you get into uh, some of the rural, but also populated southern England. There are also heathlands around here, plenty of reserves, nature reserves. Not enough, Mm. by the way, but um, plenty in relative terms. On your wall is a happy hen. (laughs) There is. There's a happy hen on one wall and uh, sad battery chickens on the other. I hadn't seen the contrast. Um, Indeed. We're going to get onto that. And outside there is a pig lying very happily in a pool of mud. Yeah. We like to remind ourselves why we're here. And we're here essentially as an animal welfare environmental organisation to bring better lives to us all through keeping farm animals in a way that is kind, caring and with integrity. Let me begin by asking you, are you a vegan? I am a vegan. I went vegan in the mid-80s. And uh, the reason why I went vegan was for, for the animals. I was shocked and horrified way back then as a young lad at the way that we treat the majority of the animals that we eat and I wanted really to have no part of that system and I wanted to do what I can to change it which is why I'm here all these years later at Compassion and World Farming. Veganism is on the rise but meat consumption is still going up. It's something like quadrupled in the last 50 years, is that right? 
Yeah, our consumption of meat is going through the roof. We rear and slaughter 74 billion farm animals every year. You can't uh, even imagine it, actually. You can't imagine that. But Say that every, again. Uh, 74 billion farm animals. Now, to put that into context, for every one person on Earth, we rear and slaughter 10 farm animals. And that number is growing. It's set to break 100 billion animals in coming decades. And in terms of how much resources that requires, nearly half of the usable land surface of planet Earth is producing our food. And of that half, 83%, as in four-fifths of all the land that's used to produce our food, is devoted to producing meat and dairy. Is it? I didn't know that. I mean, that's a dumbfounding statistic, isn't it? And if you look at what we get as humanity from using all of that land... You know, nearly half the usable land surface of the planet devoted to meat and dairy production. Yet meat and dairy produces just 37% of all of our protein needs and 18% of our calories, less than a fifth of our calories. It strikes me as well that I was thinking two things when you said that. One was that in privileged countries such as this one in Britain where we're recording and elsewhere, meat eaters still used to eat meats relatively infrequently. Yeah. It was a treat. It was something that you relish and look forward to. And now I think people just eat meat three meals a day, those who do. Meat has become the food uh, and anything else has become the side or the garnish. The other thing that struck me was thinking about the fact that we probably don't eat all of the available protein from those animals who are slaughtered because we are so wasteful and so squeamish about offal. We are very wasteful. And if you want me to put a figure on it, we've already talked about the 74 billion farm animals we rear and slaughter every year. Well, 12 billion of them are reared, slaughtered and put in the bin. Oh, no. I actually want to cry when billion. you said that. I didn't know that. Yeah. In Europe alone, in the European Union, it's two billion. Here in Britain, it's probably in the order of about 100 million animals, reared, slaughtered and binned every year. That actually made me cry. I'm emotional about animals. I'm sure you'll see it through this interview. What a despicable statistic. So we rear them... How dare in, we? ...in lives full of suffering, where they're caged, crammed and confined on factory farms, because that's how most farm animals in Britain, in Europe, in the world are produced. And then we drag them into a truck, we send them off to a slaughterhouse. Many animals are uh, you know, slaughtered in a way which you know, is far from ideal. Most pigs in Britain and Europe and other parts of this world, for example, are now being um, gassed in a way which doesn't stun them. It simply tortures them for up to a minute in the most appalling way before they die. Just quickly, why would they choose that method now? It's carbon dioxide killing of pigs. They use that method because they can kill more pigs in less time. Efficiency. It's the industrialisation, the ultimate industrialisation of the food chain. Now, in saying all of this, what I should say to you is that Compassion in World Farming, whilst I may be a vegan, Compassion in World Farming is, is not a vegan society. We're a broad church. Uh, so, And what we're trying to do is to bring everyone together, whether you're vegan, vegetarian, meat eater or whatever, to care mm. so that we're all compassionate eaters in some shape or form. And part of our message is if you are going to eat meat, 
buy meat that comes from animals that have been given a better life and hopefully a humane death. So go for free-range, organic, pasture-fed, these kind of things. Mm. And also think about reducing the amount of meat, about eating more plants, more plant-based foods. And the great news these days is that if you love meat which I did. I gave up meat when I was 17, but I still love meat. The great thing is you can enjoy Mm. the taste of meat every single day without taking an animal's life through these fantastic plant-based creations that are coming forward now. I ate one recently. Um, The day I went to the launch, my job can be strange. I went to the glitzy launch of a meat-free burger called V2 in Australia. I have to say it tasted very meaty. And in fact, I think it was actually delicious, being cooked very cleverly. But they'd used it in various forms, like in little pastries, as burgers. But it was wonderful. If you were into meat, I don't think you'd have even known it wasn't meat. Exactly. Interesting. Exactly. Well, you know, Birdseye, one of the very big brands, they're now advertising on TV and their advertising concept is a Dracula fest. And at this Dracula fest, these people dressed as Dracula turn up and they're served burgers and they can't believe that what they're eating... It's lentils. <laughs> ...is peas. It's pea-based protein in burgers that are indistinguishable from real meat burgers. But just to pick you up on and thank you for raising it, the fact that your organisation is not a vegan organisation. It's advocating for the responsible treatment of animals in the supply chain and for, as it says in on the tin, if you like, compassion. We're going to get on to exactly how that plays out, but I want to just talk a little bit about veganism and its rise. We're recording this it's no longer January, but January was renamed Veganuary. I just found out that Vegan Hour was a Twitter trending hashtag, and it was an hour of recipes shared every Tuesday from 7pm, apparently, all about vegan possibilities. Last year, List, which is the online search engine, reported a 119% increase in searches for vegan leather. So across the board, veganism is trending and it's big news, we hear it. I think people like to say it's Gen Z and millennials, but we know that it's broad-based. Why do you think that's happening? Is it about compassion or is it about health? Is it about climate? All of them? I think it is about all of them. It's some and some. Some people are concerned for animals, other about the environment, other about their health. For example, they want to avoid foods heavy in cholesterol, which dairy and meat, animal products uh, tend to be. And it's become a trend. It's become a food trend. It's become a future phenomena. I've just come back from Wales. I've been going to Wales since mid-90s. And as a vegan there, you go to one of the chippies. Uh, it's Clandudno, which is Wales' biggest seaside resort and you know, famous for its fish and chips. And you go in the chippy and uh, the thing which vegans could have is the fish and the chips without the fish. <laughs> well, I'm from Yorkshire, so they'd say, well, you can have the chips. And you'd say, but aren't they cooked in lime? I <laughs> exactly exactly well you know that was the mid 90s and so many years I've gone there and been able to buy very little else but chips now I walk into th- that same chip shop and they hand a vegan menu with a dozen options good on Wales because there are still places in Europe that I frequent I mean you'd be hard pushed in many places in Paris or in Milan to get anything Vegan, I'm putting air quotes up there, that wasn't chicken. Exactly. (laughs) Would Madam like the chicken or the fish? No, no. (laughs) Exactly. But you're seeing a change and it's it's penetrated outside of sort of inner city hipsterdom, is that what you're saying? Absolutely. I'm seeing a change. And as I walked down the high street in Clandudno, not just that chip shop, but 
everywhere. You know, the supermarkets were advertising their plant-based range, Subway and... Yeah, fast food joints, McDonald's. Even KFC advertising in big window-filling poster for all the herbs and spices, zero chicken. I'd um, sent you this link before I came to see you, hadn't I, Philip, I think, about um, a story that was in the Sydney Morning Herald that was basically saying that people couldn't even pronounce the word vegan 10 years ago. And it was like this sort of weird Hollywood niche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots changed. Well, absolutely, yeah. Again, scrolling back 30 years, uh, vegan people said, what? Um, (laughs) Are you talking about Star Wars? You know, Vulcan? Dr. Spock? Uh, Surely that's what a vegan is. No, 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 that's Vulcan. And as for the national media, they would simply make fun of it. They looked upon veganism as the equivalent of the Flat Earth Society. No disrespect to the Flat Earth Society, oh, but you understand, what we, <laughs> we, you understand what I mean by that. Now, it's as if the media, the high street, everyone has learnt a new word. Can we touch on the climate impacts? And perhaps you might like to share your personal thoughts on meat-free Mondays, for example. If everyone is not going to turn vegan tomorrow, we often talk about, I do a lot of work in climate awareness raising, we often talk about the fact that everyone can do something by eating less meat. I think that meat-free Mondays is a great way to start cutting down on the amount of meat that you eat and increasing the amount of delicious, healthy Mm. plant proteins. So through that lens, it's great. Why is it an imperative? Because I believe it is. You know, we have to recognise that if we're going to solve climate change, and remember that scientists tell us that we've got uh, little more than 10 years to solve climate change, to stop runaway catastrophe. Potentially worse because feedback loops. Exactly. And also if we look at biodiversity loss and the stacking up ramifications of all those things together. I mean, who knows? Exactly. So we've got 10 years to solve it. If we don't reduce our meat and dairy consumption as a global society, then our food alone will trigger catastrophic climate change. We won't need any contributions from the energy sector or anything else. Really? Remembering that the livestock sector produces more greenhouse gases than all of the cars, planes and trains of the world. From methane? From methane, from nitrous oxide, from other greenhouse gases, from carbon dioxide. We're going to talk about some of the stories that you tell in your essential reading book, Farmageddon. You just told me you're writing a third one. I am. Just tell us what it is and where we can look for it. Well, the third one won't be out for a a little while because I'm still writing it. I'm in that pressure position of time running out. Well, you didn't talk it to me, Philip. Well, I'm I'm (laughs) taking a break from it. Um, But the third one is essentially talking about the fact that time is running out, that we've got just decades left to save our planet. And that we need solutions and that they are there. And one of the solutions is to eat less meat and dairy. Another of the solutions is, if you do eat meat and dairy, to ensure it comes from nature-friendly, animal welfare-friendly farming methods, such as pasture-fed, free-range or organic. And actually, to move all of our agriculture, whether plants or animals or both, to a new regenerative way of producing food. As at the moment, we produce food in ways which take resources. They take away from soil fertility. They diminish the soil. They pollute waterways and the air. 
they cause deforestation and things of this nature. They mean that pollinating insects that are essential for a third of all of our food are declining. So we need to reverse that. We need to move away from the current way of producing food and to be regenerative, i.e. putting back soil health, putting back nature, putting back pollinators and stopping pollution. What would you say to those who put forward the argument that, you know, with coming up to 10 billion of us on the planet, I don't know, perhaps eight and a half billion by the end of the century. Is that right? Well, I nah. tell you, it's... Uh, <laughs> eight and about, a half billion by when? We're seven and a half billion now. We could be between nine and 10 billion by 2050, could be 11 billion or more by the end of the century. So... What would you say to those who would say, well, you know, we need intensive animal agriculture to feed the population? We did a show last series with female vegan chefs, and we'll share a link. And one of them was Abby Aspen Glencross. She's yeah. fab. And I saw that you'd interviewed her a yeah, while back. She and is fab. She's great, isn't she? You do need to go back and listen to that episode to hear her story. But basically, she was working in lab-grown meat, and now she's a, an organic farmer. Yeah. Actually, not all organic. But now she's a careful, responsible ancient grains farmer. But she told you, I have no doubt that we can feed the world. We currently produce enough food to feed 14 billion, but we waste a lot of it. Global estimations vary of between 30 to 50%, and it also isn't distributed well. Absolutely. Uh, Abby is spot on there. I would revise the figure. We, we currently produce enough food for 16 billion people, because I've run the figures again. Only we waste more than half of it. Uh, we waste it in our homes, in our supply chains. The biggest single form of food waste on the planet is by feeding about 40%, you know, the large, a large chunk of our entire grain harvest to factory farmed animals who then waste it in the production of meat, dairy and eggs. Everyone's got to read Farmageddon. I warn you, you will need to steal yourself for some of the revelations that are contained within that book. You touched on the fact that our current system is leading to pollinators disappearing. Just briefly, tell us a ridiculous story about what happens when people move bees because there aren't bees where there should be. Well, this <laughs> was, yeah, well, this was the story really that started the book Farmageddon. It, it was, it? Uh, yeah, it, it crystallised the concept. I was working with Isabel Oakeshott, who at the time was the political editor of the Sunday Times. She knew nothing about agriculture, but what I really liked about working with her was she was a fantastic writer and she came at the whole issue afresh and she'd just had a new baby. She had the eyes of that new mother. So I took her to Central Valley in uh, California, just outside Los Angeles. And we, we went there and uh, I remember standing amongst these vast industrial almond groves that were sprayed by pesticides. I was thinking about you because on the train station in Waterloo on the way here, they had this big ad for American almonds and I thought, right. mm, we don't fancy them now. Indeed, indeed. Well, it depends which how those almonds are grown. And I remember standing with her in amongst these sort of perfect rows that went on literally for miles. And I said to Isabel, just listen. Just listen for a moment. Do you know what we heard? Nothing. Not the chirp of a bird or the buzz of a bee. They'd all gone. What we did hear in the distance was the low thud of a helicopter that was pesticide spraying nature into submission. And it was part of this whole army of helicopters, of landcraft, of people in protective suits that were spraying things away, including bees. And that is why California plays host to this bizarre migratory event where 
40 billion bees every year are put on the back of 3,000 trucks. Just unbelievable. Brought into the state and put out amongst the almond groves and everything else where the natural pollinators have gone to do what nature can no longer do. You interviewed a beekeeper who used to raise bees in hives for honey production but then told you that it was much more lucrative for him to become a bee tourism manager, I'm using my own words. Absolutely, yeah, to put these bees out for six weeks, put them on the back of a truck and take them on to the next eco-stricken state. Regenerative is a buzzword in fashion as well as in food. I wonder if we might talk about some of the links between food and fibre and farming. You argued that sustainability is rapidly going out of fashion because it's about doing tomorrow what we can do today. You said we now must pursue regenerative solutions by putting back into nature's asset bank. What do you mean by that? Well, what I mean is that sustainability is about being able to do tomorrow what we can do today which isn't going to be good enough because there are seven and a half billion of us today tomorrow there'll be nine ten eleven billion we need to produce more food and be able to continue to do that at the moment what we are doing is farming in a way which is draining the system that is destroying our resources is a diminished asset why would you want to simply sustain a mm. diminished asset so we need to put That's that a rubbish need, word isn't it? it i is. want to be the regenerative editor not the sustainability editor. exactly exactly <laughs> sustainability is so yesterday for tomorrow we yeah. need regenerative we need to be putting back into our soils why are soils important because we're depleting them at a rate of knots if the un is to be believed and i believe them then we have 60 harvests left in the world's soils before that's it mm. 60 years before the food system as we know it is finished. So to move away from that, we need to do things different. And that looks like regenerative. So let's talk about that fashion link. I just quoted you and said, you said, now you said that at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit, which is where I came across you, Philip. You were on stage with my good friend, Marion Hume. And we'll share a link so you can watch that panel discussion. Also features Helen Crowley, who is a guest on this podcast. But you were talking about the links between animal agriculture, the land and fashion. And you did say it was a first foray into fashion for you, Philip. Indeed. But the links are clear. Do you want to talk to us a little bit about how the welfare of animals in food and fibre are linked? Yeah, well, I think what I was saying at the Copenhagen Fashion Summit was that I believe that the future of leather is on grass. And what I meant by that is that so much leather comes from animals that are factory farmed, that have been taken off of grass, we that don't have been know taken this, off the land. Absolutely. It's not a known thing amongst those buying a shoe, for example. It's not known and the industry doesn't want you to know. That's why it's not on the label. They don't make a big thing of it. Imagine if it was on the label. Imagine if it said this handbag comes from an animal that was raised in despicable conditions and had never had grass beneath its hooves. Exactly. Well, we not managed, happen, hey? we well we managed to get that for eggs in Britain and Europe. Eggs have to now be compulsorily labelled according to how they've been produced. So true. battery eggs are now labelled eggs from caged hens. Actually true, and we do that with steak, for example. I mean, I don't know if it's required, but certainly if you want to buy grass-fed steak, you can search for that on the packet. You can. The problem is that the non-grass-fed steak doesn't tell you that it's non-grass-fed. 
Okay, so you say the future of leather is on grass, and that is not the case at the moment. Talk to us a bit about what that means. What I mean by that is that so many cows now are, and other animals are kept caged, crammed and confined in factory farms, cattle being kept in feedlots and never being let out to roam in the fields, which I think is deeply wrong on so many levels. Uh, The future of leather is on grass. What I mean by that is that actually... Leather, if it's going to play its part in this whole sustainability, regenerative future, then leather has to come from animals that has been kept in a way which restores the landscape. So animals that have been kept on grass and free-ranging conditions. Warning, I think this will be brutal. But Philip, maybe listeners don't understand what you mean when you say feedlots, because until a year ago, I didn't understand. In fact, it was watching you on stage that made me go and look into it. And I watched a CNN report, which we'll share a link to. I may have shared this before when we did the vegan chefs episode. But if not, I'll share it again. It's just a a CNN report about the Texan cattle industry. And watching the conditions that those cows are kept in, it's disgusting. I mean, wading around in their own effluent crammed into a you describe it tell us what it means and why they're there and why it happens thousands uh, of cattle uh, standing in a, a muddy paddock or a dusty paddock depending on the season and the place no shade or shelter i've watched feedlot cattle in nebraska for example in this sweltering sweltering heat so desperate for shade in this barren, cramped pen that they were jostling to get in each other's shadow. But to put this in perspective, they can't eat the grass because there isn't any grass, so they're fed grain. Exactly. Uh, They're fed grain, corn, uh, wheat and what have you, uh, soya, which is grown out in fields. Mm -hmm. So these animals are taken off of the fields, uh, the fields are ploughed up, grain is produced harvested and then fed to the cattle and that grain is usually produced in monocultures which means lots of artificial pesticides and fertilizers in a way which wipes nature away how much of our grain is fed to cattle do you think well in britain 55 percent of our grain harvest is fed to animals in europe it's 50 percent in the world it's about 40 percent So we're growing grain on our depleted soils, not to eat it, but to feed it to cows that could be eating grass in fields that have been managed regeneratively. Exactly. Except why don't we? Why don't we? Because there is now a whole industry that has grown up to sell pesticides to farmers, chemicals, to sell chemical fertilisers to farmers, to sell grain to farmers, to sell this new modern industrial way, which actually is stealing the future from our children. God, (laughs) that was a bleak Philip. All right. In your book, you talk, let's talk about children. You talk about this kind of, I'm really thinking it because I'm staying at the moment with my best friend from London and she has a five-year-old son. You talk about this kind of rosy picture of life on the farm that we feed our children, if you like, through picture books and stories and movies. And I've certainly seen this with Otis. It's like, oh, look, who's down on the farm? It's the happy cow in the grass. It's the lovely pig. Hello. All that. But this kind of utopian idea of what the farm looks like isn't real. Absolutely. Old MacDonald's farm doesn't exist anymore and that the majority of our farm animals are 
caged, crammed and confined on factory farms, hens in cages so small they can't stretch their wings, mother pigs kept in crates where they literally for weeks at a time can't even turn around, cattle taken off of fields and put into feedlots where they're crammed and confined and, and fed grain. So, and, and all of this is a, a disaster, not only for the animals who live lives of misery, but also for the environment. So what's the alternative? What does a happy cow look like in 2020? A happy cow in 2020 looks like an animal that is out on grass, able to roam free. What I would like to see is that we start to mix it up a bit, that these animals are rotating around the farm, moving around the farm in, in harmony with crops so that they can fertilise the land naturally. Let's put away the chemical fertilisers. Let's have the animals using their manure in the age-old way of bringing back the soils and nature with it. The other day I did a panel at an event in London and a woman called Sheila Cook from the Savory Institute was on the panel. She was so interesting. She was saying that she wanted to shock everyone into thinking that she had been a vegan. Actually, I'm not sure if she had been and now wasn't or if she was simply saying she had thought veganism was the way and it isn't actually. But her argument was we do need animals in the agricultural supply chain, but we need them to do exactly what you're saying. Well, I do believe that meat eating as we know it will be a thing of the past by 2100. I do feel that there are ways that we can produce plant-based foods in a truly regenerative way without farm animals. However, we've got 74 billion farm animals being reared and slaughtered every year. So going from 60 to zero overnight isn't going to happen. So what I see as the solution is let's reduce those farm animal numbers drastically. Well, you've argued by half. By half, at least. And if we do not do that, then our food alone will trigger catastrophic climate change. So we will have to. How does this go down when you tell the powers that be these things, Philip? You've been in this game for how long? 30 years? 30, 35 years. They don't want to know. Do they want to know more now? These hard truths are things that the powers that be are beginning to become more receptive to because they realise that scientists are saying we've got 10 years to sort out climate change, that pollinators responsible for a third of all our food are going down the pan, that antibiotics, half of which of the world's antibiotics are fed to farm animals, largely to prop up factory farming, and then antibiotics could soon stop working. And then they hear that, oh my goodness, the soils could be gone too in decades. What are we going to do? We're going to have to start listening, guys. 35 years, you have just been patronising and you've just not wanted to listen. Well, now... You're going to have to. But is big ag breakable? I mean, I think that often I think this when we talk about the transition from fossil fuels to renewables and you think, of course, that's what we have to do. But those power structures and the money that underpins these systems, it's pretty hard to rattle them, never mind crack them completely, right? It is very difficult when you're up against vested interests. But, you know, every social movement has had to come up against vested interests. Every revolution has been in the face of vested interests. And ultimately, the question that we have to ask ourselves is, okay, these vested interests are entrenched and hard to overcome. Do we love our children enough to do this? Because it's their future we're talking about. What were you like as a child, Philip? Because um, I know you're a bird watcher. Where does this all come from in you? You weren't a radical ratbag revolutionary teenager. <laughs> well, from a small boy, 
Yeah, age seven, I was feeding the birds in my granddad's garden. Uh, and I got hooked on nature from there. I wanted to be a, a ranger for a nature reserve. Oh, did that's, you? That's what I wanted to do. I also... Um, what did your parents do? My parents, my father, uh, he ran a social centre. Oh, did he? Uh, oh, so for... a sense of that responsibility. Exactly, yeah. He ran a social centre for 25 years, then he but took who, early what, retirement what and went into centre? the church. So it's a social centre for people with disability and elderly people. It's a day centre, essentially, where people can go meet other other people, entertainment, good food, these kind of things. So it's essentially a good thing to do for people. Uh, then he went into the church. He was a lay preacher. Um, my mother used to help him, essentially. Uh, she helped him organise the, the local carnival, run the uh, local St John's ambulance and things of this nature. So my family were about doing good and I've tried to follow that pathway. You describe in Farmageddon how a guy called Chris Aston, who was the founder of Compassion for World Farming, or part of it anyway. He was one of the early campaigns officers. He came to your school and gave a talk, and that was the moment where you thought, all right, this is for me. Yeah, he put on a video called Don't Look Now, Here Comes Your Dinner. Oh, God. Which How old were you? <laughs> I was 15. Yeah, right. And... I saw the reality of how we treat animals and that was essentially the turning point for me. I'd already turned vegetarian. I, I was then looking to become vegan. I just want to raise this because it's so interesting. In 1997, you were involved in a campaign to get the EU to recognise animals as sentient beings and that did happen. And you tell a story in the book about a government vet saying to you something like, I don't know, wait, were you talking about hens? Yep. You were talking about battery-raised chickens and... They were listening to your arguments and then some vet said to you or someone said, but Philip, sure you don't think they feel anything? Yeah, I was on a government committee visit to a new caged hen farm. It was an enriched cage farm, which basically meant that the hens couldn't stretch their wings properly, but they could stand on a bit of dowel. Oh, they'd put a little bit of wood in. A bit of wood Ooh, in. Oh, look, it's a bench. Exactly. And uh, this was meant to change, uh, transform the And they wanted you to get excited. Exactly. And, and, and I said, look, the hens in those things are still going to suffer. And the, the government vet said to me, but Philip, how can you say they suffer? And I nearly fell off my chair. But these were the conversations to be honest, that we were having all the time in the early 90s, that my predecessors would have had in the 80s, that we had to argue the bleeding obvious, the fact that if you keep animals in cruel conditions, they will suffer. Why do you think we don't understand that animals, or some of us don't understand that animals feel things? I mean, if you have an animal, you know that animals can argue politically. <laughs> I've got a cat. My cat can have whole conversations with me and has opinions, etc. Obviously, I'm being silly a bit. No, I believe it. But it's very clear from my relationship with Pequeño that she feels she feels embarrassment. She feels emotion, not just pain. OK, I'm getting extreme because I'm a cat lover. But I'm sure that we all understand that animals can feel pain. What is stopping us from accepting that or advocating to ensure that pain for example doesn't happen what what is this barrier what is it that stops us from kind of understanding this well it's an uncomfortable truth that animals do feel pain and suffer but also they if we give them the chance they experience a sense of joy they have their own wants and needs they have their own opinions they know what they like and they don't like do you actually think my cat can feel embarrassment 
<laughs> There's no I, studies. I've checked. <laughs> I I do think that animals have emotions that go way beyond we don't know. those that we perceive or would give them credit but for. But we can't know. I mean, we just can't know exactly what's going through their minds, but we can know that they feel pain or, for example, that they communicate to one another. You shared a lovely thing on Twitter about cows talking to each other and yeah. using different voices and yeah. moves. Yeah, and that was a scientific study that shows that, that cows do communicate, that, that you know, in some way they're, they're talking to each other. But, you know, I don't know what you're thinking. I know what you're telling me. But that may not be what you're actually thinking, right? And when I'm I'm with my dog, Duke, he's a rescue. What is he? He's a Heinz 57. He's a rotty, staffy, Alsatian sort of mix. We got him as a 10-week-old rescue pup. He'd been abandoned with his sister in a shoebox in a park in the winter. Ooh, so we, we had him. Uh, and People he's turned do into the weirdest things. The, he's turned into the sweetest, most expressive dog that you, you could ever wish to meet and you know big hairy looks like a baby bear walking down the street and and you know when I look at him you know I can see that I can see the cog swirring in his mind so, you know, he mm. can't tell me in words but he finds other ways to tell me that he wants a walk that he wants a, a belly rub that he wants his dinner now please um or <laughs> else i'm obviously being glib when i say that you know my cat has political opinions she does she thinks scott morrison needs to go but um <laughs> but, but i think anyone with an animal can relate to this conversation we're having even though we're being slightly silly you can see that animals feel things um you shared a devastating picture on social media, Philip, of which I think any Australian probably did see, of that koala putting his little face in his chest because his friend had died in the fires. Yeah, yeah, and there's, there's no doubt in my mind that, that animals do relate to each other and that you know, they do, you know, at least some species genuinely feel and recognise when they've lost someone. So what do you think, just in your personal opinion, prevents the political and cultural discourse from centering this stuff? If it's something we all know, why is it still painted as, oh, silly, fluffy animal stuff? Or you're, um, I don't know, I feel like people want to dismiss anthropomorphism and suggest that we're all just being completely silly and that we're, we have dominion over nature, for example, still. It's clearly rubbish. But what do we need to do to change that cultural lens? Well, I think it is starting to change. The reason why it hasn't changed greatly hitherto is because we would have to change so much. We would have to undo so many of the things which we've done that have locked in harm to animals. For example, factory farming, which is the way that most meat and dairy is produced, is the biggest cause of animal cruelty on the planet. You know, we would have to reverse all of that. But I think that, frankly, our chickens are coming home to roost in that if we do not change then change will be forced upon us mm. because the climate the collapse of our natural ecosystems will mean that society will be brought to its knees and the only way for us to continue our way of life in any semblance of the way that we know it into the future is to change a lot so it becomes something that's not simply a nice to have or even about compassion actually becomes about the hard stuff money thriving business the future of agriculture the future of the systems in which we operate right exactly if we are going to have a society anything like the one that we 
know and recognise today, we're going to need to work with nature. We're going to need to stop being cruel to animals, essentially, because th- these things are all linked. But do we need to stop using that word, those words, cruelty and compassion, for example, to those who don't really respond to such terminology? <laughs> well, this is what uh, what I've found is that there is a certain sector of the community that will respond to those words of cruelty and compassion to animals. There is another sector that will respond to environmentalist aspects, to health aspects, aspects. But ultimately now we're trumping all of that because most, if not all people, can relate to the fact that if we carry on as we are, then we are stealing from the legacy of our children. Okay, we've run out of time, but I've got two more questions. One which I know that listeners will be saying, but hang on, help. Briefly, maybe you don't know the answer. What can we do in the fashion supply chain, if we want to make sure, just coming back to that question around leather, that we are, if we're going to use and buy and consume leather, that it has been raised in a reasonable way. It's a tough one, but demand better labelling to support those companies that are looking to do more, that to put uh, ethical, uh, compassionate fashion at the front of what they do. And I think that that also bleeds into the the food industry, you know, looking for pasture-fed, free-range, organic options and demanding those if they're not there. Uh, But I think what we can all do is seek cruelty-free alternatives. So why have leather in the first place? I haven't worn leather for about 35 years. I'm looking at your shoes. You'll find no leather in these shoes. What are they? You look very dapper. You're wearing a suit which presumably is not wool. This is a woolen suit. I shall declare that. But I haven't worn leather for 35 years. My tie is not a silk tie, although I do still have some. But I think that what we're looking for are where are the alternatives? And if they're not there, demand them. And I think we can all play our part by looking for pasture-fed, free-range organic food or just going for straight to non-animal stuff. I just want to finish on a note of hope because in Farmageddon you share some stories that are pretty grim. We've heard some stats that I'm sure will upset people, but there is hope and there are other solutions. Well, I think hope lies at the heart of humanity. I think in all of us, when we see bad things happening, we want to change it to something good. And so that's why I'm hopeful that uh, we can turn things around, that we can stop factory farming, that we can stop depleting the environment. And for me... What inspires me is seeing the rise in things like veganism, seeing the rise in interest in these issues. And I'm inspired every day to keep going when I I look into the eyes of my dog Duke and see how happy he is when he wants to go out for a walk or whatever he's doing. And I see the excitement in the eyes of our hens when we open the coop in the morning and they burst out. And these everyday moments keep me going but I do believe in the human spirit and the human desire to do good I know that in the end we'll come through because we're better than this we will deliver I've got a proposition for you Philip we always share a picture on the tile that we put on Instagram for these podcasts could you please submit your picture with Duke oh absolutely (laughs) that would be absolutely fine yeah I'd love to Fine. 
Thank you for listening to Wardrobe Crisis. To learn more about our guests and the issues that we've spoken about today, hop on over to my website, which is clairepress.com forward slash podcast. You can get in touch there and I really hope you will. I'd love to hear from you. And you can also find links to my social media. And finally, if you're enjoying the show, please head over to iTunes and subscribe. You know what they say, first in, best dressed. Subscribers are first to find out when there's a new episode and it also helps other people discover wardrobe crisis. So I'd love your help with that because the more people who switch on to ethical fashion, the better. Music is by Montaigne. She recorded this special acoustic version of Because I Love You, which is from her Glorious Heights album, especially for Wardrobe Crisis. How good is that? Thank you, Montaigne. Because I love you, my parents feel that this is a waste of time. I tell you where, okay, I won't admit that I am blind. My friends don't feel that I'm carrying a steel. I tell them all that they are wrong. Because I love you, because I love you. Because I love you Because I love you